a mass grave in the desert of New Mexico, an entire mesa covered in shallow graves. Eleven bodies are eventually recovered, never killed and buried over a series of years. What monster of a serial killer pulled off so many murders without arousing police suspicion? Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting tale in the adventures known as Killing, Missing, Hidden. I'm your host, researcher, editor, and all-around bad dude, Brad. Happy to have you with us today. As you can see, we're discussing the West Mesa murders, a.k.a. the West Mesa Bone Collector. So it's going to be lots of fun, glittery, giggling things to talk about. It's the start of a new month. New opportunities, new delusions that I'll be more productive and preparing ex- episodes before the last second comes screaming at me. That's only true if I don't burst into flames when I step outside. My God, I am too old and fat for this kind of heat. I'm going to say it's at the end of the episode two, but we're doing our push for 50 Patreons this month. If you can afford it, become one of our beautiful Patreon subscribers. It is worth your time. We'll be releasing a new Patreon episode this week, in fact. Okay, enough rambling. On to our show. So our story begins outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, on a desert plateau where many subdivisions give way to trailer parks and tumbleweeds. The West Mesa is desolate. But it's also home to one heck of a crime scene that was discovered in 2009. A woman was walking her dog when she found a human bone. And, of course, she reported it to the police. Eventually, 11 decomposing corpses were found buried in shallow graves. All women. All between the ages of 15 and 32. All minorities. All the victims went missing between 2001 and 2005. One was even pregnant when she was killed. It took the police weeks to fully uncover the crime scene, despite the assistance of a variety of experts. I mean, we had archaeologists. We had members from the Center for Human Identification out of the University of North Texas. There were just a ton of folks there, and it still took weeks. They found the bodies were scattered over 92 acres of dry and dusty land. Now, this land had started as a housing development, but it had become a victim of the housing bust of 2008 and abandoned. Once the bodies were uncovered, police had to identify them, and that process took another year to ID everybody that was found. This was the worst murder case Albuquerque had ever seen. While the history of the Western United States is littered with stories of serial killers, for whatever reason, these stories often don't originate in New Mexico. Because of this, Albuquerque's police force assembled its best detectives to tackle this case and immediately asked for the FBI to come in and assist. They declared it the crime of the century, and police promised the victims' families solving this case would be their top priority. Eventually, the official cause of death for all 11 women would be, quote, homicidal violence. But to be fair, the medical examiners and forensic experts couldn't precisely determine how the women had been killed. None of the bodies showed any obvious signs of trauma. No forensic evidence was found on the mesa, likely due to all the preliminary grading and leveling of the land that had occurred by the construction company. No witnesses ever came forward to any of these murders. In short, police just had very little evidence to work with. Now, there were commonalities between most of the victims. Ten of the eleven women were Hispanic. Ten of the eleven women were sex workers. Ten of the eleven William were from the immediate area. Several of the women were known to be acquaintances or even friends with each other. They would watch out for one another as they struggled to survive in such a dangerous walk of life. Now, coincidentally, in 2007, which would have been two years before this crime scene was discovered, a local reporter had learned that the city's lone missing persons detective 
had a list of 16 sex workers who had been reported missing between 2001 and 2006. At the time, frankly, the police didn't care because those people go missing all the time and aren't worth investigating. Because clearly, once you fall into that lifestyle, you apparently forfeit your status as a human, right? Shockingly, and I'm trying to say this in my least shocked tone of voice, nine of the bodies identified on that mesa were on the detective's list. No one knows where the other seven women were, raising the specter that there may have been another gravesite. And Albuquerque is surrounded with land like the West Mesa, giving a potential serial killer an almost unlimited choice of burial locations. It's worth noting, too, that in this time period, Albuquerque had twice the rate of violent crime when compared to the national average. And it was generally just known as a very very unsafe city for both Hispanics in general and sex workers specifically. At the end of 2010, police released seven photos of women they claimed were persons of interest in the investigation, but they never explained who these women were, why they were identified, how they became persons of interest. They were totally silent on that. Eventually, three of the women were found, Two were alive and apparently were questioned but never arrested. The third had passed away shortly before the bodies were discovered. Now, in this kind of scattershot of investigating, police executed search warrants in various locations, but they really focused in on Joplin, Missouri, specifically a photographer named Ron Irwin. And they seized hundreds, if not thousands, of his photographs and documents, both from his home and his business. Now, Irwin kind of came into play because he traveled to New Mexico every year because he loved taking pictures of the state fair. And this proved to be true. They found nothing tying him to the murders. We still don't know how or why he got on the police's radar. Now, while this is going on, a private investigator who, as far as I can tell, was not connected to this case by the name of George Walker, he started receiving these phone calls and emails that were taunting in nature. And this mysterious person claimed to know who the killer was and more details about the crimes. And, of course, Mr. Walker reported this to the police but they could never figure out who the secret person was. It was just another lead that they received that didn't pan out. And that's been the story of this case. I mean, over the years, lots of names have been tossed at this case, mostly, you know, pimps or serial petty criminals, but none ever stuck. One exciting possibility they had was this man who kept this bizarre shrine uh, in honor of the 11 victims in his apartment. And he had notes on him and all this weird stuff, but that lead didn't go anywhere. In fact, no one has ever been named an official suspect in this case. Now, in June of 2018, more bones were found close to this crime scene. And so, again, the Albuquerque PD and all these experts swarmed. But they quickly determined that these bones were not murder from a murder scene these were ancient native american bones meaning police dug up an ancient native american burial ground if scary movies have taught us anything someone needs to be praying for these cops and, and one thing i want to point out i don't want to leave the impression that this mesa was miles away from albuquerque it was literally just outside of town the city was growing like I said, you had the suburban area, you had the kind of the trailer park area, and then you had this development. Well, this was just part of the expansion of the city. Obviously, a developer wouldn't build uh, a whole neighborhood miles off in the desert by itself. But for whatever reason, whenever I was going through this, I kept picturing, I guess, a Breaking Bad-esque scene with the motorhome out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. 
So I just wanted to clarify that point. Now, unfortunately, I've kind of run through all the facts of this case. So now, now we're kind of just stuck and we need to look at potential suspects. Now, one of the most popular suspects in the media is a fellow by the name of Joseph Blay. And he was nicknamed the mid-school monster. Basically, he was a serial child rapist. He operated in the Albuquerque area in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And his MO is he would sneak into houses wearing a ski mask and would force children to have sex with him at knife point. He would usually kind of scout out his targets ahead of time, figure out, you know, what kids would get home from school before their parents got home from work, and that's who he would target. Now, despite him doing his thing in the late 80s slash early 90s, he wasn't arrested for 20 years, and that's because the only evidence they had of who was doing this was DNA, and it took that long for the science to catch up with the evidence they had. And when they finally were able to match the DNA to believe he was charged with a bunch of a bunch of rape charges against these kids and ended up being convicted and sentenced to 36 years in prison. So why is this dude one of the leading suspects in a case that involves the murder of sex workers when his claim to fame is being a child rapist? Well, the APD, during their evacuations of the burial site, found evidence that Blee had been frequently to that area, disposing of fill dirt and other items, including garbage, from his landscaping business. Blee was also identified by multiple prostitutes, perhaps as many as 20, who claimed that he liked to hire them for the evening. Both of his ex-wives said, yeah, he loved prostitutes. In fact, one of his exes called the police shortly after the discovery of the first body to say, you need to look at my ex-husband. I think he needs to be investigated for this murder. There was one sex worker who claimed Blee tried to tie her up a bit aggressively, but she was able to distract him with other activities. Blee also has a history for being arrested and breaking and entering, um, you know, to steal valuable items, but he would also take things like bras and panties and, you know, that sort of junk. One of his ex-wives remembered finding kind of random pieces of jewelry in one of Blee's um, bathroom drawers. And it wasn't new stuff. It was clearly old, like family heirlooms. And, you know, she asked, oh, you got jewelry. Can, you know, can I have this ring? And he was like, nope, nope, leave it alone. It's not for you. Well, police learned of this, of course. And when they were doing a search of his house, they found all this jewelry and took custody of it. Now, this just dovetails nicely with the fact that not a single victim had any jewelry on their body. Despite several family members claiming that there was some special piece of jewelry this person always carried with them, and they would never be without it. Before ever serving a search warrant on Blee's residence, the police decided to just follow the dude for a few days. And kind of what they learned was during the day, he was a normal dude. You know, went to work, did his thing, uh, went to the grocery store, all that stuff. But at night, at night, he turned into a different character. And what he liked to do was kind of scout the area where sex workers were known to be. He would just kind of cruise that strip, you know, nice and slow. And then he would often stop and just watch a particular group of women. And once they kind of dispersed or moved along, he would move along. Never approached any of the girls. Police, you know, thought maybe, maybe he's scouting for talent or maybe he's scouting for his next victim, you know. And we've got more concerning information about Bully. While all of this was going on, and again, DNA evidence is catching up, 
there was a murder scene back in 1985 where a prostitute's dead body was just kind of dumped on a sidewalk. Well, Blee's DNA was there. There wasn't any other evidence connecting Blee to this homicide. But his DNA was there, and no one can explain why. There's also a tale from around the same time period of Blee, you know, trying to hire a lady of the evening, and he ends up getting arrested for indecent exposure while negotiating with her. When the police arrived on the scene, they were concerned to see that on the floorboard of his passenger seat, he had ready to go some rope and some electrical tape. Now, while Blee has been in prison, his former cellmate has disclosed to detectives that Blee has very strong opinions about the victims in this case. And he claims that he paid to have sex with many of them. He also expressed just a very low opinion of women in general, but these in particular, saying that basically all sex workers are trash. Blee's cellmate also claims that Blee said he had beat at least one of them who tried to steal money from him. Now, remember how Blee was known to jump his trash site on this mesa where all these bodies were found rather than take it to the public dump like a normal person? Okay, well, the reason why that was so compelling to investigators was underneath one of the bodies, they found a tag for a plant that was a little bit rare. It had to be special ordered from California. And in when they contacted the company in California, you know, they gave them a list of everybody over the past number of years who had ordered these plants to New Mexico. There weren't a ton of people on there, and Blee was one of them. Well, when they searched Blee's company records, his business records, they were able to confirm that he ordered these plants around the same time that the killings were taking place. So they found it very compelling that this tag from a plant that Blee undisputedly had purchased and received was buried underneath the body of one of the victims. Now, there's a second big suspect connected to these killings, and that's a fellow by the name of Lorenzo Montoya. He is, at least in the media, slightly less popular as a suspect because he's dead. In fact, Montoya has been dead since before the bodies were found. He was shot in 2006. Now, Montoya was known to the police long before his death. He had been arrested multiple times for soliciting prostitute. In fact, once he, he tried to uh, hire an undercover officer and they agreed on a price, they go back to the hotel room and, of course, it's, he gets swarmed by cops. And I, they had negotiated $40, $60, something like that, but the dude only had $2 in his wallet. So not only was he hiring prostitutes, but he was, you know, not paying for their services. Um, he also, after hiring one of these women, not surprisingly, was arrested because the woman claimed that he tried to rape her and strangle her and had no money to pay her. Now, Montoya also had some legal problems at home. His living girlfriend had him arrested for domestic violence. And in the affidavit she filled out, she claimed that he had forced her to engage in, quote, gross sexual acts and threatened to kill her and bury her in lime if she didn't comply. Very specific threat there, right? Very specific. Like maybe we've thought about this before. Now, ultimately, the primary reason why police suspect Montoya as a suspect in this case is the same reason he was killed in 2006. It was one of those nights when Montoya was home alone, and of course he needed something to do, so what does the average American male do? They hire a prostitute to come over, right? I don't 
wife, if you're listening, I, I don't. I, I sleep usually. But so the woman comes over. They do what they do. Well, the woman's boyfriend dropped her off. I guess he was also her pimp. And he hung out in the car outside. Well, after about an hour, he kind of got concerned. So he went to go check on what was going on inside. And I laugh, and it's, I shouldn't. It's, it's, it's not funny. It's just a weird coincidence. Uh, he goes in to check inside and ended up shooting Montoya. Why did he shoot Montoya? Well... See, Montoya kind of got into their sex games a little too much and ended up choking her to death. When the boyfriend had walked in the room, into the uh, the house, in the living room there, his girlfriend was wrapped up in a comforter and was being prepared to be drug out the back door. Her hands and her feet were exposed and both were bound in a thick layer of duct tape. When the comforter was eventually unrolled, I assume after the shooting, her throat was covered in a massive layer of duct tape, and her knees were also kind of taped together. All of her belongings had been tossed in this pillowcase, which had in turn been tossed into Montoya's truck. I'm sorry, trunk. Apparently his plan was he was going to sneak out the back door with her in the trunk and try to dispose of the body while the boyfriend sat in the front yard. Now, interestingly, Montoya just happened to have bought several new blankets and a new comforter the day before he committed his fatal murderous act. And that new comforter is what the escort was wrapped in. Now, between 1991 and 2000, Montoya also invited the police into his life five different times, and all five calls were the exact situation. He was leaving a movie theater when he would come out and his car would be on fire, his car would be stolen, or interestingly, one time his car had been vandalized with massive amounts of acid. All five stories are obviously remarkably similar. And detectives kind of think, you know, this either was an attempt at insurance fraud or it was an effort to destroy evidence. And since no insurance company ever called the police, we kind of have to lead towards destroying evidence, right? Okay, so back to the murder scene at his house. The, I guess the double murder scene. When police got there and they started going through stuff, they found a big old roll of duct tape next to Montoya's bed, shockingly. They also found lots of videotapes. Most of them, you know, your standard, disgusting, hardcore pornography. But he had a nice collection of some homemade movies. And detectives watched those to see if there was anything on there they needed to know about. There was one tape in particular that caught detectives' attention because it shows Montoya having sex with a woman when the camera is either knocked out of his hands or put down, but the screen effectively goes black. It's facing a wall, but you can't see anything. Audio, however, is still recording. And while that audio is recording, you hear that someone, and we all presume Montoya, right? Starts pulling what sounds like tape off of a roll and not, you know, scotch tape, but duct tape, something substantial. Then opens what sounds like a trash bag. And then there's about three minutes of wrestling noises you would expect from a trash bag while you're putting stuff in there before the tape ends. The local forensics folks analyze this, the FBI analyze this tape, and unfortunately, none of them could reach the degree of certainty necessary to testify in court as to what was going on during those last few minutes of the tape based just off the audio. But it is noteworthy that after the camera is dropped, the woman cannot be heard again. She goes silent. 
So when the victims of our story were found, police decided, you know what? We need to go check out Montoya's house or his former house at this point. Uh, and let's see if we can't find any DNA from any of the 11 girls. And so they search and search and search, and they come up with nothing. Now, again, he dies in 2006. These bodies aren't discovered till 2009. We don't know how many people have been in and out of this house since then. We don't know how much cleaning has been done. So, honestly, that was a long shot to even try. I'm glad they did, of course, because who knows, they could have found two or three really good pieces of DNA, but it was a swing and a miss, but it was a swing they had to take. Police have taken that one homemade tape, as well as the others now, and have shown still frames from it to other escorts that worked in the area to see if they recognized any of the women in the videos. So far, no one's claimed to know any of Montoya's partners, but there's the code of the street, you know, and unless they're, they're trying to solve their murder, I doubt many folks are going to tell the police much. Now, there's no solid evidence directly connecting Montoya to the West Mesa murders, but there is one very compelling piece of circumstantial evidence. The year Montoya died is the year the killing seemed to stop. So those are our two big suspects, but they're not the only ones. So I'm going to run through these other ones quickly, but understand that Beale and Montoya are one and two on the suspect list in some order, depending on what evidence really hits you. So of these other suspects... One of the victims told her friends shortly before she disappeared in 2004 that word on the street from other prostitutes was there's a dirty cop who was either hiring local prostitutes or arresting them under false pretenses, then raping them and killing them and burying them out on West Mesa. She told this to her friends for the very purpose of, in case I go missing, please make sure the cops are investigated. Now, sadly, the police were told of this and the lead was not followed up at all. But holy cow, is that a very interesting statement to be made five years before the mass grave was discovered at the exact location this prostitute said it would be discovered. Our next suspect is a dude by the name of Fred Reynolds. He was a local pimp, and he knew a lot about the missing women. Like, he really took notes about not just these 11 women, but all of the missing prostitutes. And many of the victims were among his notes. And he had a shocking amount of detail about each woman. I could never find exactly what that meant. I don't know if he what you know, did he know how they like their hamburgers prepared? I don't know, but he had a lot of information. But sadly, he died in 2009, right about the same time the bodies were discovered. And so police didn't figure they should invest, investigate him very extensively. There was a serial killer who was arrested and in jail in Colorado that the Albuquerque police really thought had a hand in this. That serial killer's name is Scott Lee Kimball. He had committed four murders in Colorado and Utah. And while he was in prison, he boasted about committing so many more murders. Police went up there and or interrogated him, but he claimed to know nothing about, you know, what was going on in New Mexico, said he had never been through Albuquerque, all that stuff. And frankly, cops couldn't find any evidence to link Kimball to these murders. There's also the possibility that there is no serial killer. It could just be that 
This was known as a popular site to dump bodies out of, you know, in the world of the local killers. And you wouldn't have to worry about police investigating it. Some people buy into that one. Now, in case you can't tell, these West Mesa murders have never been solved. Police, frankly, have no real lead. Some sources claim that while the case remains open, there's really only one detective assigned to the case, and that's just for show. Now, before I get to my thoughts, I'm going to take the time to name each victim because I think they deserve to be remembered. Regardless of what you think of who they were, the business they were in, and all that stuff, these are people. They don't deserve to be treated like this. So we're going to name them here. And I apologize since most of them are Hispanic. I'll probably butcher them. And my attempt at paying respect will be for naught. But here we go. There's Jamie Barella. She was a 15-year-old and she was the only non-sex worker of the group. Monica Candelaria. Victoria Chavez. Virginia Cloven. Sylvania Edwards. She was the only non-Hispanic woman found, and she was also the only non-local victim. She was a runaway from Oklahoma City, I believe. Cinnamon Elks. Doreen Marquez. Julia Natio. Veronica Romero. Evelyn Salazar. Michelle Valdez, and Michelle was the one who was pregnant when she was murdered. I believe four months pregnant. So arguably we have 12 victims here, not, not just 11. All right, so my thoughts. And, and, and this, this case is hard for me um, because there's it's not widely covered for whatever reason. The New Mexico press did an excellent job covering it. But it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of care outside of the Albuquerque area. But I'll go through what I can, at least. You know, I, I'm firmly in the side of this is the work of a serial killer. You've got this segment of society that's largely unprotected from police and are willing or forced to put themselves in dangerous situations either due to drug abuse or family situations where they have to make a lot of money quickly. And by, and frankly, by largely unprotected, I mean both being prostitutes and being Hispanic. So you've got a great group of potential victims if you're a serial killer. Then you've got all of these victims being buried in the exact same spot. Now, again, the West Mesa is like 92 acres, I think I said. That's a huge amount of land. But they're all being buried in the same spot, in that same 92 acres. This is kind of like, I don't know, like the, how do you say it? Pythagorean theorem. I should slow my tongue down for serial killers or something other math related. You know, it's just you've got these victims the police don't care about. You've got this desert land to work with that nobody's going to investigate. It's just the perfect environment to operate if you're a serial killer. You know, missing prostitutes are not and will never be a priority for police officers. Albuquerque is super surrounded by desert, so that it allows for lots of burial spots. Personally, of the suspects we've discussed, I'm persuaded that Blee was involved. There's no single piece of evidence or connection that grabs me, but I feel like there's lots of small, thin connections that pull him into this case. Blee liked prostitutes. He was sexually violent. He visited this mass burial site regularly. His exes just knew he was involved. He had this jewelry he couldn't explain. 
His victims were missing jewelry that they should have had. His DNA is at a sex worker's crime scene. It's, it's just too much to outright dismiss, in my opinion. Now, I found unconfirmed rumors online, nothing with any sort of value from a journalistic point of view and certainly not from a uh, criminal justice point of view. But there's rumors online that when he was investigated, police found pictures he had of several of these women, several of the victims, and in the pictures, they were either asleep or unconscious or potentially worse. Now, I think, this is just me thinking, but I think the primary reason Blee was never charged with these murders is due to the lack of evidence at the burial site, which is due to the evils of land development. Well, not evils, but you know what I mean. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a SpongeBob joke. Obviously, the construction destruction was not intentional. It just, the timing sucks. The developer was developing this land right while this dude was burying bodies. So whatever forensic evidence could have been found there was messed up. Then you couple that with the desert-like conditions and it's like scrubbing a bathroom down with bleach. There's just no evidentiary connections that could be made. We can draw lots of circumstantial inferences, but there's no smoking gun. There's nothing. You can take all the evidence we've got with Blee and put it together, and the best you could hope for probably is a 50-50 chance of convicting him, depending on your jury as always, but those aren't the odds a DA wants to go into with what they've, with what the mayor and the police chief have already dubbed the crime of the century in your town. Now, Montoya, I am not that persuaded that he is a likely suspect. Yes, the killings ended after his death, and that is a big coincidence. And yes, he had killed a prostitute before. He's also just a massive piece of crap all the way around. But he strikes me as an idiot. I mean, the dude killed his prostitute while her boyfriend was, what, 20 or 30 feet away in his car right outside the home? I just... I can't imagine someone that sloppy would be able to commit 11 murders, possibly more, before getting caught. Regardless, the dude's dead. We're probably better off without him. But I'm not persuaded he's the guy. Now, of those lesser theories, there's one that really, really grabs me, and that's the dirty cop theory. I don't I mean, I don't want to throw mud at the cops here, and I'm certainly not trying to do that. But you have a story being told in 2004 that ended up having details that were spot on in 2009. And I'm worried that since it came from a prostitute's mouth, police gave it no weight. But it's just too damning to ignore, isn't it? It's either that or it is, and I acknowledge this, or it is a story that her friends and family made up after the fact to make the police look bad. That happens. Not discounting that, but it's odd. It's very odd. And again, there's unnamed people on the internet who claim that they've spoken with some of the homeless in the area They've spoken with some of the sex workers in the area. And at this time, it was widely believed that there was a dirty cop that would go around and kind of bully the prostitutes, bully the homeless. And they think the Albuquerque PD should look at themselves. Again, I acknowledge there is no good evidence, no competent evidence that you could bring into court to support this theory. 
I just think it deserves some investigation, and I think it got none. And again, speaking as a criminal defense attorney, the story from the private investigator is really, really interesting to me, and I wish I could have found more details about it. Him getting weird phone calls and emails. I mean, how weird? What what are they saying exactly? This is a guy that is trained in finding information out, right? And he couldn't do it. Then he takes it to the police, and the police can't even trace this back to a source. I don't know. I need more information, dang it. But that, I don't, I, I just, there's something there. There's something there, and I wish we knew more about it. Okay, also, remember when we talked about the detective with the missing person list that had 16 names on it, right? So those other prostitutes who were found on the list but were not found on the Mesa, they're still missing. Like I said, I think nine were found out on the Mesa, which leaves seven names that have never been found. So that raises some questions, doesn't it? Does this mean that they were killed and they've been buried somewhere else? Is it possible there's multiple serial killers afoot in Albuquerque? Or does it mean that half the women just flipping left town without telling anybody? I don't think there'd be multiple serial killers. You know, it, it, there just wouldn't be something in the water in Albuquerque to cause folks to just want to go out and start killing. So, you know, either we've got one serial killer who has more victims than we've found, or we have to acknowledge that some of them just left without telling their family. But at least one of the women from a report I read, she dropped her baby off at her grandma's house and said, I'll be back in a couple hours because she was going to run some errands, and she never showed up again. Maybe she left her whole life behind. I don't have much information on her. She could have been totally strung out. Maybe she's in California. Maybe, you know, who knows? Who knows? But it's odd for a mom to leave their child behind in such a fashion and... Parents usually know when a child is too far gone on drugs to be trusted. So I'm having a hard... Again, maybe five of them skipped town. I don't know that all seven of them would have. I think... I truly think there's another grave out there that just hasn't been found. And I don't blame the police. You're dealing with a lot of deserted land in the area, you know? And... You just, they got lucky finding the first one. It was, it was discovered when a woman was walking her dog and her dog dug up what ended up being a femur. That's how the mass grave was found. We just haven't found the second one, in my opinion. Now, I've noticed folks online, like I mentioned before, are saying that this case remains open just because politically they feel like they can't close it. But they allegedly had a task force of 40 officers and detectives working on this case. And today it's assigned as just one case in a stack of cases on one detective's desk and nothing's being done with it. Now, supposedly the reason why the police don't feel more urgency is because they internally are convinced that Montoya was the man who committed these murders, and there's just no sense in chasing down any more information when the dude's already dead. There's no way to get justice. You're not going to be preventing future killings. I think that's kind of an elitist view, personally. If these were politicians' daughters that were killed and buried in a mesa, I guarantee you they would work that case until they found the killer, even if the killer had been dead for 10 years, just so those politicians could have closure and they're not affording the same courtesy 
to these families merely because these women had a lifestyle that police didn't agree with. So, unfortunately, that's as far as I can go with this one. It's a very strange case. There is surprisingly little information about it considering the magnitude of the killings. I will take full responsibility and say this hasn't been the best week for me, so I have not dug into this case as deep as I wanted to. But just in my final checks, going through stuff today, I kept running into the same articles and the same dead end. So if I've missed something, it's not something that's very popular. At least I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, I need to revise my search efforts. But it's a very, very curious case. You've got a town that doesn't produce serial killers finding out that they've had one under their nose all this time, and the damage could possibly so, be so much more widespread than they can imagine. So this is where I stop with this one. Now, switching gears, I'm asking for a favor. Forgive me if this turns into some sort of long Shakespearean soliloquy. That's not my intent, but I just want to pass this message along. Our little podcast is doing awesome, okay? I, I mean, I'm not, despite how I act, I really try to be a humble person, and I don't toot my own horn too much in all seriousness. But, look, we are ranked as one of the top, 1% podcasts in the world as far as number of downloads. We are easily the most popular true crime podcast based out of Alabama. Now, there's not enough reliable sources for me to figure out, you know, where we rank amongst all true crime podcasts and things like that. But we are growing. We have grown at a rapid rate, and we're continuing to grow at a rapid rate. But I have one area of concern, and that's with our patrons. Am I saying this to beg y'all for money? No. We make way more money from the merch store than we do from the Patreon. But the patrons are very important because a lot of the powers that be in the, pro in the podcasting world view this number as how serious your audience is, how locked into your podcast they are. And we can't really take the next step in growth until that number improves. It's nobody's fault, of course, except mine. Um, and and let, let me give you an example. And I, I'm not saying this with any malice or anything like that, but there's another podcast I enjoy, I listen to, and they have recently received some national acclaim. If you compare our numbers, we've put out more episodes. We've got more downloads. We get more downloads per week. All the metrics say we're more popular. But they have a ton of patrons. I mean, like hundreds. And because of that they are catching people's attention, and they deserve to, and I'm proud of them. I mean, because they are in the same boat as me, started with nothing and climbing up. And so that's why this month you're going to hear me talk a lot about pushing for us to have 50 patrons by the end of the month. When September 1st comes around, I want us to have 50 patrons. Not everybody can do this, and I get it. I appreciate y'all listening, okay? And the only reason I'm pushing this again is so that the podcast can continue to grow. Because the more resources we have available, the more work we can put into it, the more, you know, I would love to be able to hire someone to assist with a lot of this crap. I hope we can do, go to, be able to go to podcast conventions I would love to be in a position where we can actually go out and meet a lot of y'all. We've got too many listeners <laughs> uh, for me to ever doubt that if we went to a major city, we couldn't, you know, have a nice little showing. But if right now we are at 13 patrons, 
And that's thanks to our newest enrollee, listener Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. We love you. We love you. We appreciate you. You probably deserved a shout out at the top, but I wanted to put it in here. If you are in a position financially where you can join our ranks and you think that the value of entertainment that we give you each month is worth $4, I would really appreciate it if you would consider signing up with us at Patreon. I'll shut my mouth about this now, but just please keep that in your mind if it's something that you can do, because again, we want this podcast to keep growing. I've appreciated the heck of y'all's support, and I know there's a lot of y'all out there that really do love what we do, and that, well, it's bonkers to me that anybody would ever want to listen to me talk. I mean, in my household, I'm just this little mouse who sits in a corner, and occasionally I get to express my opinion. But anyway, I'll shut up. Let's go on to the palate cleanser, okay? This is going to make your brain squeaky clean and make you have a good day, all right? So this is what we have this week. What do you call two monkeys who share an Amazon Prime account? What do you call two monkeys who share an Amazon account? You call them Prime Mates. Prime Mates. Yeah? Prime, like Amazon Prime, mates as in buddies, huh? Yeah. I shouldn't have to explain it. Uh, that weakens the joke. But, okay. Done. Finished. Finito. Everybody out there, please have a kick butt day. Know that I love you all. If you ever need some legal advice or you need a place to, you know, hide after committing a crime, I got you, boo. Just come on. But, you know, as I always say, try to do nice things this week. Feed some ducks. Help an old woman across the street, whether she wants to help or not. Just be nice. Aggressively nice. All right. I'll be back soon with more fun. Again, for your Patreon, we got a new episode coming out this week that I think you're really going to enjoy. Love you all. See you next week. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.